Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. Walk on over to Walters for Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Puck drops at 8 p.m. on Sunday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Long look. Gray fires. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on a ball in the dirt. Ruiz will pick it up. He will throw down to first. The strikeout completed. And so is seven innings for the first time in the big league career of Josiah Gray. Here in the seventh, strikeout seven, eight, and nine. And he strands the go-ahead run at second base in the bottom of the seventh. Here's the set. Now the pitch. Swing and a drive. Deep left center field. Robles on the run way back. This ball is gone. Goodbye. It's a game-winning walk-off home run for Adolis Garcia. And the Rangers have themselves a one-run win today. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, June 26, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. If there's a good thing about the Nationals being a bad team this season, that thing is that tough losses don't have to feel so bad, especially if within those losses are good things. And I thought what we had on Saturday was a tough loss for the Nats, yes, but a tough loss for the Nats that featured a very good thing. So the Nats lost at the Texas Rangers on Saturday. 3-2 was the final in uh, this game two of a three-game series. And that's lost on a walk-off home run. Bottom of the ninth, Kyle Finnegan faced one batter. The result, a leadoff walk-off homer by Adolis Garcia, a.k.a. the great Bombino, on a bomb to center field for a 3-2 Nats loss. So not a pleasant way for the Nats to lose to fall to 26-48 on the season, no doubt. But what you also had in this game was a terrific performance by Josiah Gray. Two runs, seven innings, nine strikeouts versus one walk. He was excellent. And so, Mark, I know that the result of the game wasn't good, but the Nats starting pitcher in the game was very good. And with this starting pitcher, that certainly matters quite a bit. Yeah, I'm with you on this, Al. Obviously, there's a lot of frustrating things here, and you would love to come away with a win because of the way that Josiah Gray pitched. And you end up getting a lack of offense aside from one home run from Nelson Cruz. You get a controversial and, let's just admit, wrong call on what maybe could have been a go-ahead double in the eighth, and then, of course, the walk-off homer. So none of that is good. But take a step back, and that's really what this season is all about. 
take a step back and what matters in the bigger picture. And to me, it is Josiah Gray and not just what he did in this game, but what he's done now over a sustained stretch. This is now five in a row, really good starts for him. And over those five starts, he's got a 124 ERA, 0965 whip, so under one uh, batter reaching base per inning, and 31 strikeouts in 29 innings. For me, I come away very impressed with what we've seen from him. We still need to see it consistently every single start and over long stretches of time, but he's now shown us over two seasons that he can go on a nice run for four or five starts in a row. And when he's on, he's really good and he absolutely looks like he is the top pitching prospect they thought they were getting last summer. It's been an odd last few weeks for Josiah Gray. What he did on Saturday was only his second start since June 8th. Remember, he had that weirdo scenario where he was supposed to be the Nats starting pitcher for what ended up being a 9-5 loss to Atlanta at Nationals Park on June 13th. Start of the game got delayed for 90-plus minutes due to rain. Gray had already warmed up. His scheduled start was postponed, and he was essentially skipped over in the rotation. So this game on Saturday and then his outing the previous Saturday, the 2-1 10-inning loss to Philadelphia at Nationals Park, six scoreless innings. Those are his only two games since he started at the Miami Marlins on June 8th, but he's been good lately, as Mark just outlined. And, you know, I think about that game against the Phillies at Nationals Park uh, now two Saturdays ago, June 18th, six scoreless innings, 117 pitches. So he does that. Next Saturday, he goes seven innings. He's being pushed here a little bit, which is good. And he's responding to the pushing, which is really good. You know, even with the good from Josiah Gray, it would come in like five innings, six innings, and you felt like, all right, hopefully there's a little level here. Perhaps we're starting to see Josiah Gray get to that next level, and that's really exciting to see. Yeah. Now, the extra rest probably helped in both cases. Like you said, the one start that was essentially skipped because he warmed up and then never pitched, and then he had two extra off days after that 117-pitch start, which they knew going in, which is why they were comfortable pushing him, knowing he'd have some extra time before the following one. So maybe it is something they have to look to do a little bit more. When they have off days on the schedule, maybe make sure that he's getting that. And even at times, he gets an extra day that somebody else doesn't. And maybe an Eric Fetty or a Patrick Corbin starts on full five days and Josiah can go on the sixth day, something like that. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to help him get through this first full big league season. But yeah, I do think it's important that to see that he can have success deep into starts. Uh, This is the first time he recorded an out in the seventh inning in his big league career. So that is a a major step for him as well. Now, he was helped by the fact that the, the Rangers were pretty aggressive early in the count. He had some very quick innings. The most fascinating part of this one to me was he essentially abandoned his fastball over the final like five innings of this game. It was almost entirely sliders, curveballs, the occasional changeups. He wound up throwing of his 90, what, 94 total pitches, only 27 of them were fastballs. He had 31 sliders, 31 curveballs. You hardly ever see anything like that, certainly not from a guy who we think of as like a classic, quote unquote, power pitcher like he is. But that was an adjustment in his part to what they were doing, what he was feeling. And I think in a lot of ways you could say, hey, that's encouraging to know that he can be successful over seven innings against a major league lineup when he maybe doesn't feel good about his fastball and he has to go to the breaking balls as much as he did. And he can still be a strikeout pitcher doing that as he was on Saturday. So for Gray in this uh, loss at the Rangers, two runs, seven innings, nine strikeouts, one walk, gave up just four hits, a homer and three singles. He threw 94 pitches, 61 strikes, 
versus 33 balls. I really liked how Gray ended his outing. We've talked in the past about, you know, that Max Scherzer thing, right, of ending strong, ending with an exclamation mark. That's really what Josiah Gray did in this game. A scoreless bottom of the seventh with three swinging strikeouts, including back-to-back swinging strikeouts of the Rangers' numbers five and six batters, Mitch Garver and Nathaniel Lowe for the first two outs. And those were the two guys who got to Gray in the Rangers' two-run second. Gray only gave up runs in one inning in this game. Bottom of the second, a one-out five-pitch walk of Mitch Garver, and then Gray gave up a one-out two-run homer to Nathaniel Lowe on what was a bomb to dead center for a 2-0 Rangers lead. So for Gray to end his outing like that, three strikeouts, scoreless bottom of the seventh, gets Garver, gets Lowe, Terrific. I mean, you know, he's he's doing that Scherzer thing of ending strong, which is just such a, a it feels like a, that's a, a real trait of someone who could be an ace. Gray's not there yet, but he could be that guy. Yeah. And he did it against the Phillies as well. Remember, he finished strong in that final inning against them. And you see the emotion come out from him when he gets that last out and he knows he's done for the day. You see some fire and emotion, which I like a lot. It's not out of control or anything like that. He's very much in control of it all. So that's why Again, when you think bigger picture here, it's really hard not to be impressed with this. You're seeing growth, you're seeing development, you're seeing success. It's just that last little thing. You just want him to be rewarded and get the team to end up with a win. And everybody feels in a good mood if that's the case. But, you know, I think they'll have a rough night thinking about the way they lost this game. But I think they'll wake up in the morning and say to themselves, we got a keeper here in Josiah Gray. This guy's legit. I don't know where he ultimately slots in in a, you know, in a winning rotation a few years down the road, but he's a part of it for sure. And you've got to believe that he's going to continue to get better. I think we've seen enough evidence now to know that he can be uh, legitimate. Again, needs some a little more consistency, needs to limit the home runs, maybe work a little bit on the fastball and and doing something with it to, you know, avoid being pretty hittable when he throws it over the plate. But we're talking about refining things here. We're not talking about any major overhaul. Oh, he's got to do this or he's not going to be successful until he learns how to do this or that. We've seen it now over a decent stretch of time uh, since he got here. And that is tremendously encouraging. Josiah Gray now this season, 14 starts, ERA of 382, strikeouts per nine innings of 9.8. And this recent run of one good outing after another comes off, remember, him having had some real problems in that 9-4 loss to the Dodgers at Nationals Park on May 24th. Seven runs in three innings. He was not good in that game. Since then, he's been a different pitcher. He's been a much better pitcher. Been very nice to see. And, you know, I, I think you could really make the case no Nationals player's performance this season matters more than Josiah Gray's. And, you know, it's been a rough season so far when you think about all these other guys who we went into the season looking at as, okay, well, if this guy breaks right, that could mean good things in terms of an expedited rebuild, right? But Steven Strasburg has not broken well. Patrick Corbin has not broken well. Victor Robles has not broken well. Carter Keboom has not broken well. There's a lot of negativity in terms of what we thought maybe possibly guys could be and what they have been so far this season. Gray's doing well. That's good. You know, Gray and Kbert Ruiz and Luis Garcia and maybe Lane Thomas, depending on how his season shakes out. Like, those are the things to cling to. Like, life rafts right now, if you're a Nationals fan, just searching for something to keep you afloat in terms of hope with this season. So really good job by Josiah Gray in this game on Saturday. Well, so let me just say real quick here. I, I agree. I, I would say that it's very hard to envision the Nationals building a winning team within a couple of years, as they hope to, without Josiah Gray being a big part of it. That would require pitching to come from a lot of other corners. They're still going to need it from Cade Cavalli, Cole Henry, 
whether it's Corbin, Strasburg, Fetty, whoever else they may have or a free agent to be. But if Gray isn't a part of it, that's another spot you've got to fill in a rotation. And so I agree. I would say that he's very much on the short list and maybe number one, as you're saying, on most important nationals to prove to you by the end of this season that he is a big part of the plan moving forward. So good job by Josiah Gray on Saturday. But this was a Nats loss, a 3-2 walk-off loss at the Texas Rangers. So Josiah Gray goes seven innings. The bullpen only has to eat up two innings, but the bullpen doesn't end up getting the job done. Now, Coral Edwards Jr. did get the job done. Scoreless bottom of the eighth, another scoreless outing for him as a Nat. The Coral Edwards Jr. ERA for the season down to 252. Remember, he in the 2-1 win at the Rangers on Friday night tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings. And then Kyle Finnegan came into the game. And we had this conversation on the last installment of the Nats Chat podcast. Tanner Rainey's been shaky lately. He was shaky again in the win on Friday night. Did toss a scoreless bottom of the ninth, but he did so uh, in issuing a one-out walk and then giving up a one-out single. Finnegan has looked better lately, although, you know, Finnegan at times can be off. And, you know, in this game, he ended up facing one guy and giving up the crucial home run. Uh, Finnegan, bottom of the ninth, faces Adolis Garcia, and Garcia gets Finnegan to the tune of a walk-off homer to center field for a 3-2 Nats loss. Finnegan had Garcia down at 1.12. The homer, 449 feet per stat cast. This guy, Garcia, is a talented player, so I, you know, I don't know if there's like great shame in him homering off you, but especially off our conversation on the last installment of the podcast, Kyle Finnegan. I mean, I know that's your guy, Mark, so I hope you're doing all right after this outing here. That was tough. Just a tough way to lose a game like that. And especially, you know, one batter in and then that's it. The game's over just like that. Yeah, it is a tough way to lose it, obviously. But I'm I'm doing okay. And I think, again, you know, Finnegan's going to feel bad in the moment. The Nationals are going to feel bad in the moment. But I think they're going to wake up Sunday morning and be okay with this. And, you know, here's why. He faced that same part of the lineup on Friday night. He struck out Garcia with a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. We were raving about it uh, just 24 hours ago. And he gets to a situation in this game where it's now two and two. He's seen the fastball and they decide they're going to try to get him with a slider. The idea pitches down, maybe even out of the zone and get him to chase. And he hung it. He left it over the plate and Garcia did what good hitters do with a slider that's hanging over the plate. So, yeah, you're frustrated if you're Finnegan, but you're saying it was bad execution of one pitch. And in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth, one pitch can be. Uh, the difference. But again, in the bigger picture, I do think you have to like what you've seen from Finnegan. He's had really good stuff here lately. And I mean, it was clear that no matter what, he was going to be the guy pitching this inning. That was the heart of their lineup. We've seen Davey do that using Finnegan against three, four, five hitters. And you can say, oh, well, even if he gets the job done, they're still going to the 10th and they may need a save situation. So that's why they're just hanging on to Rainey. Maybe so. But here's the thing. When the Nats are batting in the top of the ninth, trying to score the go-ahead run, Finnegan's the only one warming up. Rainey's not warming up. So he was coming into that game regardless. So it could have been a save situation uh, for him. He was going to be the guy because it was that part of the lineup, because he'd had success against them the night before. I don't have a problem with any of that. I think this may be a case of you just say it was one pitch. He missed his location with it. The hitter did a good job. You move on. Now, as long as that just happens once every you know month or something like that, you live with it. Good relievers are going to give up some homers every now and again. You hope it doesn't happen too often. You hope it doesn't cost you a game. If Finnegan can brush it off, come back strong his next several times out, then you can say no big deal. That'll be the, the key here. 
does he let that one mistake compound on him and turn into more problems, then we have a bigger issue on our hands. But if this was just a blip and an otherwise strong run for him, I don't have a big problem with it. Finnegan has given up four home runs now this season to over 28 innings. In case you're curious, Tanner Rainey, three homers in 23 innings. I mean, I think each guy, there are a lot of similarities. Each guy is really talented. Each guy can look great, but neither guy is very consistent, you know, and so you'll get good and then you'll get the hiccups. And so you never feel truly supremely confident in either guy. But right now with this bullpen, you feel like if you're going to have a good bullpen, those are going to be two guys leading the way for you. Those guys in Edwards right now are the guys who Davey Martinez clearly trusts. And there's no question, Davey going to Finnegan as Davey has these last two games, that's a clear endorsement of Kyle Finnegan. Like, I don't know, I don't know how you read that any other way. Like, you can, if you're a Tanner Rainey guy, you can spin this however you want. Like, Finnegan right now is the ace reliever in the mind of Davey with this bullpen. I think that that uh, is pretty clear. Roaming Rooster, the best fried chicken sandwich in the DMV, is expanding. You've already seen our location by Section 238 at Nationals Park, but now we have recently opened up locations in Pike and Rose in Maryland, and in Virginia, we now have Burke and Chantilly. Locations under construction include Gaithersburg, Crofton, and Manassas. The first two listeners to email Podcast at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com will receive gift cards at the new Roaming Rooster locations. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Swing a line shot. Just foul past the diving third baseman Smith. Lunging, diving to his right toward the line. It was beyond him and just foul. Cruz is arguing that the ball hit Smith's glove. Now, if it would depend where the ball was. If it's in foul ground and it hits his glove, it's still foul. So we had controversy in this game on Saturday. Uh, the Nats lose 3-2. The Nats finish the game with just uh, six hits to go along with five walks. It felt like over the first two innings, every other plate appearance for the Nats resulted in a walk. It was crazy uh, how that was working out. So uh, first of all, Nelson Cruz, the former Ranger, had a big game in this game on Saturday. Nelson Cruz ended up going one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. Uh, The two-run homer coming in the Nats, two-run six, a one-out two-run shot to left field on a one-two pitch to tie the game at two. Then in the top of the eighth inning, we get a Josh Bell leadoff single to left field on a one-two pitch. Nelson Cruz is batting. And what looks like should have been a hit, if not a double, uh, if not more, who the heck knows, ended up being deemed a foul ball 
and the result of the plate appearance ended up being Nelson Cruz grounding into a killer double play. I know this was a big uh, piece of conversation in the postgame activities. Uh, what was said about what went down here in that eighth inning? So, look, for those who don't know exactly how that play is ruled and what's allowed and isn't allowed, here's, here's the deal with it. Any fair foul call that takes place in front of the umpires doesn't even have to be necessarily in front of the base, but in front of where the umpire, third base umpire is positioned, is not reviewable. They can only determine that based on what they see with their own eyes in real time. Now, Nelson, you saw immediately motion to Laz Diaz, the plate umpire. It looked like it deflected off the third baseman's glove. Laz didn't seem to go for that. And it is initially the home plate umpire's call on a ball until it gets to the base. Now you have Davey come out. He knows it cannot be reviewed, but he asks them to convene and say, hey, can the third base umpire, Chad Fairchild, maybe you saw it differently. Can you guys overturn that based on what you saw? Fairchild, who in his defense is trying to like jump out of the way because the ball's coming towards him and he's got to see if the ball lands fair or foul. So it's kind of a tough call for him. Now, when you watch the replay, it's plain as day. The ball hits Josh Smith's glove clearly over fair territory and then lands foul past third base. That is a fair ball. If seen correctly, that's a fair ball. The frustration from everyone here is that that's not a reviewable play. It becomes a judgment call, so you can't review it. And um, you know, I just saw it again. <laughs> I mean, I hope they look at it tonight. That's all I'm gonna say. We, we haven't talked a whole lot about this over the last year and a half. I'm not a big replay guy, like in in all of sports. I think Leslie replay is good. I think it slows everything down. I think they look at way too many little minute things that's not worth it. But to me. The primary purpose of replay should be to overturn the obviously wrong calls that people can see even before you've looked at the replay. And so to me, it's frustrating that baseball has these specific rules that don't allow for it on something like that, that can so clearly be seen. It would take 30 seconds, if that, for them to overturn that call and get it right. And so I think that more than anything is what left everyone frustrated. Yeah, no doubt. You know, this comes up in the NFL all of the time, like something should have been overturned, but it wasn't reviewable, so you couldn't do it. I have always subscribed to the Bill Belichick school of replay, which is everything should be reviewable. If you're going to have it, make everything reviewable, because one of the worst things in sports is when you have exactly what happened to the Nats on Saturday. Well, yeah, but that's not reviewable. Well, if you have replay, use it. So if you don't like replay, that's one thing. But if you're going to have it, all right. And personally, I'm a fan of replay. If you're going to have it, then you should be able to apply it in pretty much every circumstance. I'm open to say if you want to say, hey, you really shouldn't use it for this. OK, maybe. But on something like what happened with Nelson Cruz on Saturday, that's what replay is for. Like, that's the whole purpose of having replay. So if you're not going to be able to apply it in a circumstance like that, you have to say to yourself, what are we doing here exactly? Uh, with this, I, I just I feel like the line often in sports is kind of arbitrary with what is reviewable and what isn't. And so to me, like I said, Belichick and first, you know, to me, if you're on the side of Belichick, you're almost always right. Right. Given who he is. But <laughs> I, I think it's like if you have replay, everything's reviewable for the most part and be able to take something like what happened in this game on Saturday and fix it. Because like you said, this was pretty clearly ruled wrong. And, you know, I do have sympathy for these umpires. A lot of these calls are not easy. You have guys hitting baseballs with exit velocities of 100 plus miles per hour. Like you're not always going to see things crystal clear. That's forgivable. That's understandable, especially with some of these umpires who aren't exactly in their mid-20s, right? So allow for them to use the technology to get this right. I, I don't know why something like that isn't reviewable. 
And it seems like so often the lack of review or the unwillingness at times to overturn things is done like to protect the umpires. And it would seem to me, I would almost rather if I was an umpire, allow those to be overturned because it helps exonerate you somewhat. Say, hey, that was a tough call that it would be really difficult for anybody in my position to see that in real time. So to me, I mean, you know, if, if they get it right... In the end, are we talking about Laz Diaz and Chad Fairchild right now? No, probably not. We make a brief mention of it. We say, okay, they got the call right in the end. Move on. Instead, we're going to be talking about this for a while and we remember their names. And, you know, I would think that's worse. Now, the other part of this is if that is ruled correctly, either in real time or after the fact, it's a double down the line. That doesn't mean that they're going to score the go ahead run. And in my mind, what my, my fear was is that Josh Bell, who's on first base, is going to come streaming around second, heading towards third, and now Gary DeSarcina has to decide whether to send him or not. And we don't know how that would have played out, but clearly there was not. It, this was not a, if they get the call right, they're guaranteed to score a run. They have a better chance of scoring a run, but not guaranteed. And then also, as you pointed out, Nelson Cruz, once it happens, shake it off, try to do your job. And instead, he immediately hits into just a killer double play that ruins the whole inning for them. So yes, you want the call right. Yes, it hurt them. But I hope, and I don't think based on the mood in the clubhouse, I don't think anybody in there is trying to say that that alone cost them this game. No, I mean, get more than six hits, you know, like we we, we, you know, we could start with that. I wonder if DeSarcina was whispering to, to uh, Laz Diaz, Please call a foul. Please call a foul. Don't don't put me in this position again, okay? Please. I can't keep doing this, okay? Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the Nats did have a rough game on Saturday in terms of runners in scoring position. One for eight is what the Nats ended up doing. You know, it was good to see Nelson Cruz with that two-run homer, like we said. So give him full credit. Awesome to see that. Nats haven't been hitting many homers this season. We did get one on Saturday. We did get two more doubles in this game in addition to the Nelson Cruz double that should have been but wasn't. K-Bert Ruiz had a double in this game. And Juan Soto had a double uh, in this game. Second consecutive game in the series that Soto has a double. Uh, Soto in that two-run six leadoff double off the base of the center field wall. But also for Juan Soto in this game, another double play. Man, you're just like, come on, Juan. And this happened at the top of the first. So, you know, you're sitting down, getting ready to enjoy some Nats baseball on a Saturday. And what happens in the top of the first of Elaine Thomas leadoff single? Juan Soto, five, six, three, double play. Boy, Mark, every game. There is a, there is a, a noticeable fail for Soto in a, in a big spot or a pseudo big spot, a chance to drive in a runner or a chance for a big inning for the Nats, and it doesn't happen. And it feels like Soto often is a culprit here. It's just it's driving everyone nuts. It happened twice in this game. You could have the double play early on in the first inning. I mean, look, three of their first four batters reach base against the opener, the surprise opener for the Rangers because the original one, uh, Matt Bush, was scratched after pitching the night before and didn't feel right. Let's take a step back here. They were facing a Rangers bullpen game and managed all of two runs on six hits despite some opportunities early on to have a big blow. They couldn't get it, and Soto was front and center for it. There was a double play. But I'm also going to fast forward here to the seventh inning where he comes up with two uh, following another double play grounder, by the way, hit by Lane Thomas, comes up uh, two outs, man on third, go ahead, run, and he ends up striking out, and he is now seven for 56 with runners in scoring position this season. That is not good. I don't care about sample size. I don't care about the you know vagaries of runners in scoring position and whether that means anything or not. Seven for 56 from a guy who clearly is better than that. We know he is. That is a problem. 
Davey Martinez thinks he's trying too hard in those spots. And I tend to agree with Davey uh, on that. You can tell it's not like he's hitting the ball hard and making outs. He's taking bad swings. He's popping it up. He's hitting a double plays. He's striking out. These are not good quality at bats or good solid contact. I think it's perfectly understandable to believe that Juan Soto gets into these spots. He knows he struggled in them. He knows the situation with the team and he's trying too hard and it's not happening for him. So a few things with Soto. Number one, I think the conversation about number two, number three in the lineup, I think that's over. He's coming up in plenty of spots with guys on base batting second. So like, I I think that conversation is done. And I think it's telling that we've seen more and more of Soto lately back in that number two spot. Pretty clearly, Davey doesn't think that that's the issue. It's not the issue. And I I think it's an excuse, quite honestly, if if Soto believes it's the issue. Okay, And I'm not saying that he does. Maybe he doesn't. But I know there was kind of this theory that like he didn't like hitting second. I I think we're sort of past that now in terms of like that being a valid reason for his struggles. Here to me is what is fascinating about Soto's season so far. So you have in baseball what's called BABIP, right? Batting average on balls in play. Normal is about 300, right? A batting average on balls in play. Juan Soto's BABIP on the season coming into this game on Saturday, 209, which is atrocious. And so you might say, well, there's a lot of bad luck here for Juan Soto. And, you know, to a degree, there is. A 209 BABIP is, <laughs> there's definitely at least some bad luck there. But I think that does speak to some of the quality of contact. And we have talked about some of the stat cast stuff with Soto. He's not hitting balls as hard as we're used to seeing. Uh, and if you look at Juan Soto's career, he always has had a BABIP above 300. And like, I think a lot of that is because he makes really good contact. His BABIP for 2021 was 332, 2020, 363, 2019, 312. This year, 209 coming into this game on Saturday. Man, does that stand out and like slap you right in the face when you're looking at what exactly is going on here with Juan Soto. So, you know, it, it's bizarre, man. I mean, the batting average is really low on the year. It's, it's down to 215 on the season. He's getting his walks, but I don't think as much as you know we're used to seeing. We've talked about the power. That's not there like it can be. Overall numbers for the year aren't necessarily awful, but they're not Juan Soto-like numbers. But there are just some odd, peculiar things about his statistical profile so far this year. Yeah, and look, he's not hitting a bunch of hard ground balls into the shift and having hits taken away from him because of that. He's not hitting a line drive at a second baseman playing in shallow right field. Every once in a while, that's happening. But more often, they are pop-ups. They are weak ground balls. It's almost like you know his forte is driving the ball to the opposite field. And what's interesting is he's still almost once a night, if not you know, even more than once a night, he is still doing that. And that double in the sixth inning was classic Juan Soto, drives it really hard on a line, deep left center off the wall for a double. He's just not sustaining that. Uh, he's not producing, you know, three of those in a given night. And maybe that's a high bar to set, but for Juan Soto, we expect that and he expects it of himself. And so I see frustration from him. He is human. He has not struggled like this before. He has not had the weight of a whole organization on his shoulders like this before. And I think it builds on itself. When you know you've struggled in those spots, you are going to put more pressure on yourself. Somehow he's got to find a way to relax from that, trust himself, take the kind of good quality swings that he knows he can. And, you know, again, I keep saying, I don't doubt that in the long run, he's going to figure it out. I don't think this is who Juan Soto is now. Maybe this year, he's more like this than the one that we know. But in the big picture, he's going to be just fine. But boy, is it tough to watch sometimes when he comes up in these spots that for the last four years, you knew deep down he's going to deliver a quality at bat for you. 
And right now, you're expecting the worst right now. You are. And it's a weird deal. But if I had to say, okay, well, why has the Nationals offense been underwhelming this season? You actually could say Juan Soto's a reason, which, you know, you're almost like not comfortable saying. It feels odd. You're like, what's wrong with me saying that? But no, that's actually part of this. Juan Soto with runners in scoring position has not come through. And Juan Soto overall just has not been the player we know he can be. I mean, his OPS for the year is under 800. That's not Juan Soto. He's not a guy with an OPS in the 700s on the season. You know, that's just, it, we're not used to seeing that. And so hopefully that changes here. So we've had two one-run games so far in this series at the Rangers. We'll have game three on Sunday afternoon, a 2.35 Eastern start. And Mr. Sunday for the Nationals, Jackson Tatro will be the starting pitcher off what he did the previous Sunday. Can he repeat that kind of success uh, on Sunday afternoon this weekend. So with Tatro, is it like start to start with him in the rotation? Or do you think we're seeing maybe a little bit of a look here for him in the rotation? What do you think the thinking is right now with him? I think the thinking is we don't have anybody else at the moment. And so as long as he's serviceable, yeah, we're going to keep putting him out there. I mean, we already have seen them move Paolo Spino into the rotation on a semi-permanent basis. So until somebody else is ready to take that spot, whether that's Yoan Adon, whether it's Kate Cavalli. And we talked the other night about how that may be pushed back a little bit now that he's getting a break in the middle of the season. We may be seeing Annabelle Sanchez here before long. He is pitching uh, down in Florida, I think probably going on a rehab assignment sometime soon. Josh Rogers is throwing, although he's not, I don't think, being looked at as a starter. So I, right now, they don't have another fifth starter. So I think it is Tatro, as long as he shows that he can handle it and what we saw last time out, pretty impressive from him. And so you hope you see more of it. I don't know that they have any visions of him being this, you know, great long-term building piece for them, but maybe he is. And you have the opportunity to get a look at him. So might as well uh, do that. But I mean, look, the rotation has been in a nice run here. It's five of the last six starts have been very quality starts for them. The only outlier, of course, is Patrick Corbin. But even that was only three runs allowed and four innings in that rain shortened game. So they're going to look at Tatro. They hope for the best here and keep putting him out there as long as they have the need for it. But I don't know what the alternative would be at this moment, to be honest. Uh, you just said something. Uh, Anibal Sanchez, we're, we're, they're, they're going to do this. We're really going to do this. He's going to actually pitch for them at the major league level this season. This is actually something that still could happen, huh? He's pitching in Florida, faced live hitters. Uh, it sounds like they're getting ready to send him on a minor league rehab assignment. Now, I mean, you know, they could take a month and let him do all that. And God knows what may happen between now and then. But at the moment, they are preparing him as though he is going to pitch for them at some point. Now, what I would say is I would think and hope they only do that if when the time comes, they have an obvious need for another starting pitcher. At this very moment, they don't. But as we've seen, a lot can change. And they've been in some desperate situations this year when it's come to their rotation. Uh, I get that he is not at all a part of the long-term solution at all. But if it means saving some innings from somebody else who is running out of innings or is looks like they need more time in AAA, like are you going to call up Yoan Adon and let him get pounded again up here just for the sake of it? I, I don't know. I would think that they're at least tracking in a direction that we could see Annabelle Sanchez here before long. That is that is something, man. <laughs> that is something. Uh, well, I guess if you're desperate and you need to use him, okay. If he's taking starts away from just about anybody else, then uh, not okay. Uh, we shall see. By the way, I'll say this about Josiah Gray. We wondered about him having his start skipped during that just brutal stretch, right? And we were like, wow, was that really the week to do something like that? 
At least right now, you could argue the Nats are being validated with having done that with how Gray has pitched recently. So maybe the Nats were like, look, this is going to be tough. This is going to be a tough pill to swallow this week with our pitching situation. But this is in the best interest of Josiah Gray. And at least right now, it looks like the Nats skipping that start, holding him off for a few extra days. Maybe that actually was the way to go. So let me tip the cap to the Nats on that. At least right now, that appears to have been a wise decision. Yeah, as we said at the time, they were making a decision they felt that was best for Gray, even if it was not best for the team. So far, that looks right. And to expand it, what we talked about the other day about what they're doing with Cavalli and Henry, their young starters, it's a little bit of a similar idea. Maybe in the end, it is best for those pitchers and their development. You know, we'll see when it's all said and done if it was worth it. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shover's Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself or someone you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings at 9 on both 1061 ESPN in Richmond and on Sports Radio 96.5 FM and 850 AM in the Hampton Roads area. So if you are in those areas Check out Nats Chat on the radio. You can listen online to ESPNRichmond.com and SportsRadio965FM.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Science relayed via Pitchcom. Burke to the belt. Now to the plate. Swinging a long drive left field. This one's way back there. It's got a chance, and it is gone. A line drive home run for the former Ranger, Nelson Cruz. Ties this game at two in the sixth inning. Home run number eight for Nelly Cruz. Career home run number 457. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.